Is almost everything we know about pain wrong? How can we reframe our understanding of chronic pain? Is there a more effective way to treat pain outside of pills and procedures? I'm Bon Koo, the host of Design Lab. It's a show where we explore the question, how might we design healthier lives? Today's guest is Dr. Heather Vareich. He is a physician and researcher at the VA Boston Healthcare System and Brigham and Women's Hospital. He's an assistant professor at Harvard Medical School. He's published more than 135 papers in the most prestigious journals, including New England Journal of Medicine and JAMA. He frequently writes for the New York Times and the Washington Post, and he is the author of three books, Modern Death, State of the Heart, and The Song of Our Scars, The Untold Story of Pain that was just published in April. If you haven't done so already, go to the podcast show notes to subscribe to the Design Lab newsletter. Each week, our producer, Rob Pugisi, is going to deliver right in your inbox some great stuff to read about design and health. We love your support. The way you support us is not by giving us money, but by telling others about the show, subscribing to the podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, and going to Apple Podcasts and giving us five stars and leaving us a review. Currently, Apple Podcasts is the only platform that allows you to leave a review. I love my conversation with Heather Varich. I learned so much from him. As a physician, I treat patients in pain all of the time. And in my personal life, there have been very important people to me who have been suffering in chronic pain. And what I have experience is that we don't know how to treat pain. We don't understand pain in our society. There's so much more that we can be doing about creating and developing new ways to treat people who are suffering. I think you're going to learn a lot from my conversation with Heather, and you're going to learn a lot from his book. I highly recommend it. Now here's my conversation with Dr. Heather Reich. Heather Varich, welcome to Design Lab. Thank you so much for having me here. I'm excited. I've been devouring your book, The Song of Our Scars. I love it. I feel like it should be required reading material for <laughs> medical schools. Like what? 100%. I'm an associate dean at medical school. I, re- I really feel every doctor should read it. One line that struck me in the book, you said, almost everything we know about pain and how we treat it is wrong whoa that's an intense (laughs) line man i mean you know first of all i'm always wary of hyperbole you know i'm i'm also i also do a lot of research and i feel like you know i i apply the same principles no matter what i'm writing if i'm writing a research paper versus a book versus an op-ed i feel like if you're gonna say something you might come with receipts, right? I mean, you might come with your reference and uh, you need to know what I'm talking about. And I kind of thought about this line a bit and I go back to it and I still think that it holds true and, and it holds truer every day. Irony being that pain is the most common reason anyone comes to a hospital. Pain is the number one and number two most common reason why people come to the emergency room. Pain is, you know, why we have medicine. Absolutely. And I work right. in an emergency room. And what yeah. you're 100% true. 
And for that to be the thing that we understand the least is just, it's crazy. But let me sort of build on that, what I mean when I say that. So the first thing that we get wrong about pain is the idea that pain is an entirely physical sensation. Pain was, you know, almost for a while, it was considered a fifth vital sign, similar to heart rate, blood pressure, et cetera. And yet what the science of pain suggests, and which is, you know, which is and also how we've thought about pain since really our entire existence, is that pain is a lot more than that. Pain is a lot more complex than simply being, you know, a number that you can point out on a one to 10 scale or, or anything that that's simplistic. You know, just from a neurological perspective, the three phenomena that pain seems to overlap with one is, you know, obviously physical sensation, but also an emotion. And third, a memory, a traumatic memory specifically. And pain is in the midst of all of the, all those things. It's not really a pure physical sensation. That is the other related sensation called nociception, which is an entirely physical construct. But nociception is unconscious. You don't actually feel nociception, mm. but it is when it transforms from this thing that your body is transmitting up your spine into your brain to what causes you to sort of be in pain and to hurt, that transformation is really the key to how we can understand, you know, hopefully, maybe uh, overcome pain. Mm. Why do you think there are so many misconceptions about pain? What pain is, how you treat it? Well, the first reason that it's been so hard to define pain is because Pain is actually very, very complex. And I think in our efforts and in medicine, we are almost averse to complex situations, especially in the clinical side. On the science side, we embrace complexity. But when it comes to clinical care, I think our goal is to make sure, you know, how can we make something as simple as possible, which makes sense. You want, you know, things that are simple can be replicated, can be scaled, et cetera, et cetera. And what we tried to do with pain was we tried to simplify it to our tools. Our tools were you know, some medications and very, very simple ways of assessing pain. And so we tried to force this thing that was very, very complex to something that, you know, we could all understand and quickly treat the emphasis being on quick and fast. And I'm going to pause here, like literally <laughs> like those smiley faces, that zero uh, yes. to 10 chart that we've all probably seen or actually have had to rate our pain, but zero yep. being like a smiley face and 10 being like, a really grimace frown. Like, what, what do you think of that scale? I mean, that's that scale. You know, I go back to residency and I start residency and I would ask people how much their pain is. And, you know, oftentimes I'd get the 10. But then I was like, well, maybe I'm not describing it well enough. Maybe my 10 is not someone else's 10. So I had started off at saying, you know, zero being no pain to 10 being the worst pain you've ever had, or 10 being a knife stabbing your abdomen or something. And then that didn't seem enough. And then said, well, 10 being a train crushing every bit of your body. <laughs> well, that yeah. wasn't enough. And, you know, the fact of the matter is that people have actually done studies in which they've said, well, what if we follow this scale to the T? What if we treat every patient based on this scale? And what they found was that not only does using that scale not actually help people's pain, but it actually increased the number of side effects people are having or adverse events people are having. And yet in medicine, wow. we still use that scale. So I think one reason why we misunderstood pain is because a, pain is actually harder than we appreciated. Pain is actually more complex and has a complexity that is at odds with our health system. 
The second the reason why pain has been hard to pin down has been its subjective nature. Mm. And part of that is because we medicine was, you know, at, in the Renaissance at a time when science was just burgeoning, there was this big threat to scientific progress, which was the, the religious establishment. So the thinkers and philosophers of that time decided, well, you know, maybe what we'll do is we'll split the human body and the human experience into mind and body. And we'll tell the religious folks that you can keep the mind, we'll take care of the body, and then you do your own thing, we do our thing, and we'll live happily ever after. Even in medicine, we divided you know, body uh, physicians into body doctors and mind doctors, mind doctors being psychiatrists and body doctors being everyone else. Well, and, and that's really where we've made a lot of progress. We made so much progress with somatic conditions, with conditions that we can, quote unquote, objectively diagnose on an x-ray or a blood test, etc. Like a pneumonia, we, we could listen to it. We could hear the crackles on the lung exam. Yes. We see the infiltrate on chest x-ray and we give we it We can grow the bacteria, yeah. right? We give the, we, everything just lines up to our, our workflow. You know, same thing is true in my field of heart disease where, you know, and, and in heart disease, we're blessed because we have a blood test called troponin. If someone comes in with a heart attack and their troponin is high, that indicates that that pain is very serious and that, you know, that person might, you know, might, might die or, or might need some quick intervention. But if the troponin is normal, we can reassure the patient. We can say, hey, guess what? You know, I know you're in pain, but we have no evidence that your heart muscle is dying or that you're having a heart attack. And mm -hmm. so we can provide this sort of reassurance for chest pain that we don't have for most people's pain. Yeah, um, there's, there's no troponin or biomarker for pain. For back pain or for headache or abdominal pain or most of the things that people come to the hospital with. And then the third reason why we don't understand pain is because there is so much corporate malfeasance and there is so much interference by bad corporate actors in not only the treatment of pain, but really how we understand pain to begin with. And those are all the reasons why mm. it's been so difficult to pin pain down. Uh, okay, there are I have multiple tabs open in my mind right now <laughs> of what direction that we can go. Oof. Okay, let's talk about how we in modern medicine messed up our understanding of pain and our treatment of pain. You've said in your book that you know, we've advanced so much in our understanding of so many diseases and research in medicine, but in pain, we actually went backwards. The natural flow of medicine has been progress, 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 unrelenting progress. You know, if you look at the last 200 years, every year we've seen improvements in lifespan, reduction in death rates, what have you. Even when we have a cataclysmic event such as the pandemic, Look at how quickly we were able to develop amazing life-saving vaccines yeah. and, and treat therapeutics, etc. And yet over the same period of time, look at what's happened in the entire field of pain, especially chronic pain. You know, we had the opioid epidemic, which really started after we went to this extreme practice of giving anyone who had any sort of pain an opioid way more than what they probably needed mm. without even doing any of the research necessary to answer our opioids even effective for patients with chronic pain? What are the side effects or long-term consequences that patients might have to face if they take opioids? And what are the alternatives that we might have that could help these patients? And we failed at every one of those steps. But it goes even beyond opioids. I mean, if you look at, for example, the rate of failure of back surgery for back pain, spinal surgery, 
failure rates are extremely high for people who have back pain. And in fact, the best advice that I ever got, because I too, you know, one of the reasons I wrote the book was because I had this horrific back injury in medical school. But when I went to a surgeon, he knew me because I was one of his students. He looked at my MRI and it had all these, you know, nasty looking abnormalities. But he turned to me and he said that I could operate on you, but your back's never going to be the same. And that he he put the ball in my court and said that, well, you need to do everything you can to make sure you don't go to the operating room. But that's not the sort of advice many patients get when they go to the surgeon with back pain. And and then we have so many other countless procedures that are uh, routinely performed, which, you know, again, if you look at the randomized control trial data, they're no better than placebo. Mm. So we have failed in so many different ways. And then how we treat the person in pain has been so callous. You know, and in many ways, cruel that being a person with chronic pain today, it's one of the worst conditions you can have. Yeah. Uh, so our failures are systemic. And yet at the same time, I feel like there is an opportunity where we can, in fact, learn from everything that we know today. We can put all those pieces in place and really build that treats that starts by treating the person in pain with respect and dignity and then providing them access to the many options or things that we know work for people with chronic pain that so far we've just not been able to do. Mm. You make a dis- distinction between acute pain and chronic pain. Acute pain, I think, I feel comfortable treating acute pain. You know, if someone comes in with a femur fracture in my emergency department, there's a lot of tools I can use to give immediate relief from the acute pain. But chronic pain is one of the most difficult and frustrating things for me to treat as a physician. What's the difference between acute pain and chronic pain? Well, if you just go by how we clinically define an acute and chronic pain, the difference is simply in the name, right? I mean, you'd think as we both have been taught that chronic pain is essentially acute pain prolonged over time. That if you have pain frequently for three months or more, your acute pain is now chronic pain. And the difference really is how long they last. Having said that, if you actually look at the biology of chronic pain, if you actually look at how well treatments that work very well for acute pain work for chronic pain, you start to see that there's actually very little in common between them. And that's one of the reasons why I used that statement early in the book about how little we understand about pain. In fact, you know, one of the things that becomes clear to chronic pain is that over time, it becomes less and less dependent on any type of physical sensation driving that experience. More and more, it becomes autonomous. More and more, it becomes more of an emotion or traumatic memory rather than a physical sensation in the brain, which is why things that are so effective for acute pain, you know, one of the examples being opioids, one of the best treatments we have, one of your, you know, one of mine and your best tools in our arsenal in helping people who are acutely suffering from any type of acute injury. And yet those very same drugs are not even ineffective for most, but harmful for most as well. In fact, the best evidence suggests that people who take chronic opioids over a long period of time have more pain over time than those who take other medications such as Tylenol or or ibuprofen, etc., because of how they just change your body completely, how they change your body's ability to heal itself, to treat its own physical suffering, and, and basically makes you completely dependent on taking those pills. And that type of misunderstanding is also why I think we need to move away from and really need to have a different sort of paradigm through which we look at chronic pain. Yeah. Because chronic pain is complex, simple therapies 
or you know, silver bullet is just not there for the person in chronic pain. What we really need is being able to provide really all sorts of personalized options for patients so that they can at least begin their journey towards healing. When I was reading your book, I was thinking about my own practice of treating patients with chronic pain. And I felt bad <laughs> because I'm, I I don't understand pain. I see pain every time I work. I you know there is I've I've been guilty like many other physicians of when pain as a fifth vital sign was the rage in medicine, treating pain with opioids, and it, I am part to play in the opioid crisis, like many other physicians, right? Like, you know, part of this system that I felt like I had no training and I did not look at the evidence and I went with what was popular in American medicine at that time. And now we've done a 180, maybe too far the mm -hmm. other way. I need some help. <laughs> <You know? laughs> well, part of it starts by this really sort of generous and humble acknowledgement that you just made is that we are not very good at treating pain. And it's not just as individuals, but as a, as a system. And I think that's one of the reasons I wrote the book is because, you know, if you look at the opioid epidemic, what has our response been to the opioid epidemic? We just said, oh, there's all this fentanyl coming from China. Let's just close our borders. Let's make sure people don't get fentanyl. And then we've blamed, you know, this sort of one big bad evil family, the Purdue, uh, you know, the Sackler family as being, you know, this, which has fermented all this sinful activity. And yet we have not taken responsibility in both perpetuating the opioid epidemic, but also now not thinking seriously about, well, what are we going to offer patients who come to our help, to who come for help, who are seeking help, who are either in any form of who are in chronic pain, who are may, maybe already are taking opioids, or maybe have not taken opioids, but are coming in and need our help and attention, what are we going to do for them? And that's really, I think the first, if, you know, if I can do anything through this book, it's going to be just have us take pause and think about what our role has been in this crisis. Because unless we do that, we've just set ourselves up for the next crisis. Because, you know, one of the things that perpetuated the opioid epidemic was that as physicians and as clinicians, as nurses, there are very few things that give us so much satisfaction as helping someone in pain, right? So because we're all human beings, because empathy is hardwired into our system, being able to relieve someone's pain is just so gratifying, which is why I think so many in medicine, you know, without having any ulterior motive, gravitated towards this movement of elevating pain and elevating the status of pain. And yet what we didn't know was that the tools that were being prescribed, that we were being asked to give, they were flawed. And that's, I think, so, so the first thing I would love for us to do as a society and community is actually acknowledge that, that this is really hard, that this is hard and that we bear responsibility in perpetuating this crisis. And we also need to take responsibility for the patients who have been prescribed opioids. We can't just abandon them. We can't just yeah. say that, oh, sorry, this is not the 1990s anymore and we can't give you any more opioids. I think the goal 
should be towards lowering people's opioid doses, but it has to be done in a partnership. It has to be done as, as a collaborative decision, a shared decision, rather than an imposition that comes from the physician that says, oh, sorry, we can't give you any more opioids. Uh, you'll just have to score some heroin from the streets, which is exactly what, unfortunately, many people have done. Many people yeah. have had to resort to illicit opioids because they couldn't get their regular prescription, which can be so much, which is, in fact, so much more dangerous and has caused so much unnecessary suffering. Yeah. So much of chronic pain is an invisible disease. Often, mm -hmm. most of the time, there is not a specific pathway to explain that disease. For example, the MRI of the back may be negative. Yep. You know, there's no mm -hmm. lesion there to explain the patient's symptoms. And a, in medicine, we often will maybe not believe the patient's pain or label them as being it's somatic it's just maybe it's not real because pain's so subjective and i know i have done that in the past and i think we have our biases in medicine why do we do that well it goes back to just how limited our tools are you know i think one of the things that we've done is we've conflated subjective symptoms with basically malicious symptoms. Or if something is not something, we, if there's something that we can't scan, or if there's something that we can't see on a blood test, then it must not be real. People can have, in fact, most suffering is subjective. Most, whether that's emotional suffering or even physical suffering, there's no blood test for pain. There's no MRI scan that can show how deep grief that someone might feel. And I think one of the things that we need to do is we need to stop that type of conflation. I mean, one of the things I want to do through this book is actually try and reclaim this idea that saying that something is all in the head means that we're delegitimizing it. In fact, and one of the things that we know about pain is that pain is in fact all in the head. Mm. You don't actually feel pain in your body until it reaches your brain and is transformed into this experience that we call pain. Before that, it is an imperceptible sensation. And the brain generates that experience of pain based on so many different things, based on how much attention you're paying to it, based on what your prior experiences have been, based on your own specific threshold for pain, based on what context that you find yourself in when you have that experience. I mean, I'll give you a small example. Like if you are someone who has been discriminated against, if you came to seek help in the past and people did not respond to your pain or respond to your suffering, maybe the next time you come in, how you experience that same sensation is going to be different than what you experienced in the past or how you expressed it in the past as well. So the brain is, in fact, instrumental in our experience of pain. And in fact, so many of some of the most promising therapies for people in pain, especially chronic pain, are actually focused on the mind itself. Mm. And which is why I think we need to destigmatize, you know, all in the head and reclaim it. Because as long as we keep saying that if something is in the head, it's not real, we'll deny people and restrict access to and stigmatize therapies that actually can help quite a lot of people. Some of these therapies mm. include things like cognitive therapy, specifically their forms of cognitive therapy that have worked very well for people in chronic pain. These include things like acceptance and commitment therapy. There's a new type of therapy that's been tested and has shown promising results in the randomized trial called pain reprocessing therapy. Mm. And essentially what these therapies do is that they change your relationship with pain. The thing with pain is it's, it's the loudest alarm bell that can go off in your body. As soon as you have pain, 
all of your energies and attention is focused on it with this great intensity. It blocks out every other thing that you might be feeling or experiencing because you're so focused on trying to eliminate the pain because pain often is a signal that your body is being actively threatened in a sort of irreversible way. Mm. And yet, and that is very true for acute pain. That's exactly what you want someone with a heart attack to respond with. You don't want someone who's having a heart attack to just sit at home and finish their you know, Netflix movie before they come to, you know, you want them to, you know, to stop the movie immediately, call 911 or call for help because if time is muscle and the longer they wait, the more massive yeah. a heart attack they can have. And yet that very type of reaction becomes so, so dangerous for the person in chronic pain because most of the time in chronic pain, in the vast, vast, vast majority of chronic pain, you know, the, the peaks of pain that you might experience do not indicate that your body is under threat, don't actually mean that there's something new that's causing you that might leave you disabled forever. And yet our body's reaction is very, very similar. I mean, I go back to when I had this terrible back injury, you know, for months and years, I would be in pain all the time. And I I would still respond to it the same way that I did when I first got injured. When I would try and exercise and when I would try and do physical therapy, I would worry that, you know, am I going to make my back worse? Am I going to lose function of my body? Am I doing too much? Should I just stop? Should I just go back to my room? Is this a good idea or not? And then what those voices, what the pain starts to do, it starts to constrict your life. It makes it so small and constrained that you lose every aspect of the things that give you joy. Mm. And so... Was that the reason why you wrote the book? Because you're not a pain doctor. When when <laughs> I was reading your book, I was like, oh, it's a you got to be a pain doctor. I was like, well, you're a cardiologist at Harvard. <laughs> like, And you're writing a one of the best books on pain I've read. You know, I think part of, of why, it's, it was certainly a big reason why I wrote. And and the reason why, I, I don't think that you, first of all, I don't think that you have to experience a condition to be able to write about it or to be able to treat it. I mean, as an emergency room physician, I mean, how many of the acute conditions, you know, you've never had a brain bleed, you've never had, maybe you've had appendicitis, I don't know, <laughs> right? You've, I've never broke, I've never broken, well, no, I have broken bones, but not not like the ones I've seen or taken care but the, of. But, yeah. but the vast majority of things that you treat, or treat, right, right, you've never had themselves, but that doesn't mean that you can't take care of them. And yet, yep. When it comes to pain, there's this idea that pain is because it is so personal, it is so essentializing, that only the person who has it can truly understand what it means to have pain. And I think that there is certainly some truth to it. But I think what that allowed me to do was that it allowed me to have this inside view of what it feels like to live with pain. It gave me this empathetic view of the person in pain because like so many others, I too didn't have a scar. I didn't I too didn't have, you know, bones sticking out of my back or or any type of, you know, gruesome injury that was visible. And my pain also was invisible and I looked fine otherwise. I was, you know, a young medical student and I didn't look the part of someone who had really crippling pain. But that's one of the things I want to do through the book is that I want to give people that multidimensional view of someone who treats people in pain, someone who's lived with pain, and someone who's done a ton of research in pain and has tried to put everything together so that they don't have to live through something like that themselves to have had that same experience and to learn from what I have learned 
both sort of living with pain, but also talking to other patients in pain, talking to researchers who study pain and putting all those things together. But yes, I mean, I think that, you know, in ways, you know, I go back and I think about that day I got hurt and it was probably one of the worst days of my life. And yet, and you're, you're a medical student lifting like 200 pounds, bench pressing 200 pounds. I was just a typical jock medical student who thought he was immortal and invincible, could do anything he wanted, and then got this really bad back injury, you know, while doing a bench press. And the reason I had that injury was not just in that moment. The fact is that our entire lifestyles are so designed to make sure that we develop chronic pain, especially chronic back pain, which is the most common reason why people have any type of disability, both in the US or around the world. It's the most common reason why people can't work. It's the most expensive medical condition in America, which mm-hmm. I think blows a lot of people's minds. It's one of the most frustrating things as a physician to treat because there's really totally. not too much you could do about it. Yep, yep, yep. So many things that we just assume about back pain, such as, oh, you should get an MRI, but now we know MRI abnormalities don't predict pain. There's so many young, healthy people who have all these back abnormalities, but have no pain at all. But so many of the, I think, promising therapies, such as, you know, pain reprocessing therapy, which is, again, a form of therapy that tries to change the narrative of pain inside you is for people with chronic pain changes how they view and react to their pain and how they relate to it as part of their lives and as a sensation that they feel and tries to change their reaction to that pain and one of the things that it does is not only does it allow people to do more things and live their life more but it actually leads to the pain itself being much more commonly eliminated So one of the studies that I think is really, really interesting is that uh, this is a study that was published recently in JAMA Psychiatry, which showed that patients who had chronic back pain and who received these therapy sessions for a month, at at a year, more than half of these patients were completely pain-free, as opposed to only about 16% of patients who received the usual care therapy, which again tells you, and these were patients who were not treated different with medicines or who Mm -hmm. were not treated different with surgery. And so... I really think that, you know, so when we think about back pain, you know, we always think about, well, let's look at the back and see what's the problem in the back. And I think we're looking in the wrong part of the body. What we really need to study more is actually the brain and actually think about back pain or chronic pain of any sort as a neurologic disease and neuropsychiatric disease. And so that we expand all the options and use all the therapies that patients that will work for patients with this condition. Yeah. Because I think too often we're just looking at the back. We're looking at the lumbar spine, the muscles, <laughs> X-ray, MRI. Then we're almost kind of hunting for something that's wrong, so there could be a procedure or surgery done to fix it. Because again, our entire framework is designed for acute pain. So mm. think about how you, in medical school, if I were to guess the first sort of simulated case or patient that you ever saw, it was probably someone in pain whether abdominal pain or chest pain, et cetera. And the way we talk to patients, I don't know if you had this mnemonic called Socrates, which is, you know, we used a lot, but was essentially used so that we could get to the bottom of, well, why is the pain there? The way we approach a patient in pain is almost like a mystery that we have to make a diagnosis and solve it. And that's very, very important for acute pain because you want to make sure that the back pain is not going to cause someone paralysis or not, that doesn't have a red flag sign, etc. But when it comes to chronic pain, there's no mystery to be solved most of the time. You know, most mm-hmm. of the time people have chronic pain that just has these sort of peaks and valleys. 
And there, I think what we really need to focus on with pain is thinking about the place that pain has in someone's life and thinking about it more as a chronic condition that they live with rather than something that we need to solve and fix immediately because we cannot solve and fix chronic pain that easily. But so many times that burden falls on you in the emergency room or, you know, physician who is in the inpatient side. And I think taking a step back and thinking about taking a different approach to pain rather than our usual approach in which we are trying to get to this, you know, solve the mystery and, and then try and eliminate it. We need a more holistic view, especially when it comes to chronic pain. Now, reading your book, I got kind of like, I was maybe hyper acute of all my pain <laughs> that, that I have. And, and I was thinking, you know, I was trying to self-diagnose what I do because I do activities that probably I should not be doing uh, mm -hmm. this late in my life. I skateboard and mm -hmm. I fall and injure myself all the time. I love mountain biking, but I love going down hills and jumps. I'm always injuring myself and I surf and my shoulders are getting messed up and I'm always having shoulder pain. So every day of my life, I'm having some sort of pain in my body and what the activities I do are dictated by those parts of my body that are having less pain. But mm. I'm thinking, why do I subject myself to this chronic pain when <laughs> I know other of my friends won't do that? But I'm like, yeah, I'm going to skateboard and I, I'm going to be sore for three days and not be able to walk. Right. Well, I mean, I think that there are, are trade-offs in life. And, and I think part of what, when you're in pain, one of the things that pain wants you to do is actually nothing. It wants you to not move so for example, if you've injured your back, the pain will signal that you should not do anything that uses your back mm -hmm. or, or that uses whatever muscle is hurt. Because again, it goes back to its protective mechanism, which makes sense in the acute setting, right? I mean, if you acutely dislocate your shoulder, if you rupture your tendon in your bicep, et cetera, yeah, you want to make sure that you rest it, you don't aggravate that injury. But when that pain becomes chronic, that very protective mechanism then serves to become a detriment to your recovery because now it's telling you, well, don't go to the physical therapist because it's mm -hmm. going to hurt when you do all these exercises or don't go to your friend's birthday party, even though it's important to you and you and you love your friend, but it's that the car ride is going to be tough and you're going to be there uncomfortable. So, and, and I think part of what we need to do which is especially important as physicians, one of the things that I've seen, been struck by, is that so many clinicians, nurses, physicians live with chronic pain themselves. Uh, you know, many of our jobs, you know, if you're a surgeon, if you're a proceduralist, if you're a nurse, many of the things you're doing on a regular basis are terrible for our body. Mm. Um, and because we're now live, working for longer and longer periods in our lives, so many physicians and nurses and clinicians are living with pain themselves. And so it's not just that we're treating more and more people with chronic pain, we're, we're experiencing better ourselves and, and it's time we take this stuff seriously. You can't have a long thriving career if you're plagued by pain. Mm. Now you practice here in Boston, but you went to medical school in Pakistan and mm -hmm. I'm wondering, is pain treated differently there? And are there other countries or cultures that treat pain better? than we do in the U.S., who have a better understanding of pain than we do in the U.S.? The U.S. is a complete outlier in how it treats pain. Wow. Not just Pakistan, but one of the stories I shared was one of our senior residents went to Switzerland as a primary care physician. And as part of his work, he also did work in the emergency room. Six months into his new job, he sent 
us an email, a note about, you know, chronicling his life there. And he said that I have not prescribed a single opioid. And this guy's in Switzerland, so he's, he's not like he's in an impoverished country. And that just kind of blew all our minds. He said, how can you, we can't go five minutes without prescribing yeah. an opioid. Yeah. Especially when pain was the fifth vital sign, right? Exactly we right. Always... This was around, this was 2011, 12. This was at the height of the US opioid prescription rates. And so I reached out to him after for this book and I wanted to ask him, well, what are you guys doing differently? And, you know, it's not like other countries don't have people with chronic pain. In fact, mm -hmm. if you look at the best studies suggest that other high-income countries have very similar rates of people in chronic pain that the United States does, they just give much fewer opioids. So that's the one big difference. And thanks to that, you know, they don't have this sort of dual sort of crises of both chronic pain and an opioid crisis. And the other thing that is different with other countries is that in this country, you know, the, our, the industry has been very, very successful in developing a culture in which we look to pills and procedures for all sorts of relief. Relief from attention deficit, relief from sadness, relief from grief, relief from, and then also relief from pain. And one of the clearest examples of that is this one of my favorite studies, which showed that in the United States, people have a more stronger placebo response than any other country in the world. And so when an American gets a pill, even if it's a sugar pill, they will have a much more powerful placebo response to that pill than people in other countries. And that placebo response is actually increasing over time. So wow. it is just mind-blowing in itself because I think it represents how successful the industry has been in inculcating this belief, this, this really, really strong belief that if we take a pill, it'll help us tremendously. There are similar studies for depression, for example, mm. where Americans have a stronger placebo response to antidepressant placebos than any other country as well. Wow! And so I think those two things are what makes the treatment of pain in this country so different. I think now we're getting better. Mm. I think prescription, and I know prescription rates for opioids are coming down, but still, this is a problem that affects every bit of our healthcare system. The average American dentist is 33 times more likely to give an opioid than an average British dentist, for example. Wow. The irony is that the patients who get opioids after dental procedure have lower patient satisfaction hmm. and are more likely to develop chronic dental pain as well. I think we can get better. I think we as a culture need to, you know, as a, as a health system, we gave this promise of mass anesthesia to people. We said hmm. that we can make pain go away. And I think that that was a false promise and we didn't deliver. And the cost, one of the big costs of that was the opioid epidemic. But even more so, I think, betrayed the trust of many patients for whom we overpromised the benefits of our therapies without going through the type of rigorous testing that we mm. need to to make that assertion. So I do think that we need to take stock. We need to take responsibility. But the fact is that there, there are, in fact, many treatments and avenues for people in chronic pain. We just yeah. need to make sure we can actually get them to patients. Yeah. Oh, I don't know if you feel comfortable answering this question, but for those listening who are themselves experiencing chronic pain and who've been looking at a pill or a procedure to treat their pain, 
what advice do you have for them on how to rethink, reimagine, redesign the ways that they've been living their life with chronic pain? Because I think you can give some good advice on like mindset, right? Of how, how to approach pain. I think everyone's journey with pain is different. I think everyone has a different journey, but there are many commonalities that exist between most people who have lived with chronic pain. I'm not saying at all that pills or procedures don't have a role. I do think that they have a role. And especially if you have a specific sort of treatable diagnosis, then they can really be the difference. They can make a huge difference. But for many patients, many patients I spoke to, many people I've seen, they want to get better. They want to be able to live their lives without pain. They seek medical care, often in the form of, you know, invasive procedures and come out disappointed and come out still in pain, but also disappointed that they didn't achieve the sort of result that they were hoping for or that they were told that they would get. For me, and and I think this is what the evidence would suggest, you know, going back, the fuel for pain is attention. The more we try to control pain, the more strong the pain becomes. And the more pain we actually experience, it kind of we perpetuate its growth by attending to it. And I think one of the ways that I got better, and again, was I did a lot of physical exercise and physical therapy. And again, that's hard for a lot of patients because not, you know, sometimes it can be expensive, it can be hard to get to. But if that is an option, even if it hurts at the start, in the long term, it is something that helps your body become stronger. You know, exercises releases your sort of body's own natural endorphins and painkillers. It can provide some of our own strongest anesthesia. So that is one thing that worked for me. But mm. the last thing I'll say is to the person who is in pain is that for the most part, there's no one silver bullet for pain. Mm. But keep an open mind and make sure that all the options for pain that might be out there, whether that's a pill, whether that's a procedure, but also whether it's exercise, whether, whether it's some form of cognitive therapy, keep an open mind. Who knows it'll work for you? Mm. I want to end our conversation with one of my favorite quotes from your book that really spoke to me. You said, it is essential that we treat not just individual ills, but those that plague our communities as well. Simply put, you cannot be a good doctor or nurse without being committed to social justice. I 100% agree with that. And so many of our society's biases and prejudices are most pronounced when we are treating the person in pain because pain is so subjective that oftentimes we might go back to our lizard brain and, and reach for some of these biases that are embedded in our brain through all these subliminal messaging that we get. We've seen that there are great disparities in how the pain of Black people, for example, is mm-hmm. responded to or treated or the pain of women, which is why I truly believe that if we can come up with fix or durable fix for pain, and it's not just even going to be on the individual level, it's going to be on a societal level, on a community level, on a health system level, that the effect or benefits of that will permeate not just across our health system, but can actually help us become a more equitable and just society. Thank you, Heather, for coming on Design Lab. Love the conversation. Thank you so much. Uh, I really appreciate it. And thank you for, for reading the book as well. You can find Heather Verreich on Twitter. His handle is H-A-I-D-E-R-W-A-R-R-A-I-C-H. And reach out to me on Twitter at B-O-N-K-U, on Instagram at D-R-B-O-N-K-U. 
Design Lab was produced by Rob Pugisi. Our theme music was created by Emmanuel Houston and the cover design by Eden Liu. See you next week.